Los Angeles is the birthplace of many culinary mashups, things like sushi burritos and Korean tacos. But there is a more subtle mixing going on there, too. And it's one that involves Southern food. There's probably even bigger battles for us to have than whether or not we're going to worry about whether or not one of our Mexican brothers or sisters is cooking soul food. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories about the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. And today we venture outside our usual geographic boundaries and head to the West Coast to find the stories of two Los Angeles restaurants with Southern roots and flavors but a different narrative going on behind the scenes, one that speaks to the cultural mixing ground of Southern California. Lena Nozizwe sat down at the tables of both. It's Sunday afternoon in South Los Angeles. Church services are over, and a steady stream of well-dressed parishioners who've just been spiritually fed now line up at a cozy cafeteria-style restaurant. I want to try the, the la carte ribs. Delicious Southern cuisine is located on Crenshaw Boulevard, a main artery in an area that is traditionally known as the heart of Black L.A. The sign above the steam table offers promises of everything from red beans and ribs to grits and gumbo to collard greens and po'boys. On the wall, just above the register, is a color photograph of a smiling President Barack Obama, his wife Michelle, and daughters Malia and Sasha. The diners are smiling, too. Many of the patrons are originally from the South, so the food tastes like home. i go for the fried pork top, fried chicken, <laughs> and the greens. Oh, and that peach cobbler. <laughs> I love everything I've eaten here. I'm from Mississippi. This is the closest thing in L.A. to southern, real southern food that I have ate. Not an ate that Dudlin's, I done ate it. Mississippi soul food, I done been in every soul food restaurant in Los Angeles. And delicious, the only restaurant I done came back more than once. That's how good it is. Delicious. A soul food place with that kind of praise, you might think the chef and owner of the restaurant is a transplant from the southern food capitals of New Orleans, Atlanta, or Houston. But you'd be wrong. In fact, he's a native of Puebla, Mexico. The story of how a Mexican cook came to own and run a soul food restaurant in Los Angeles is a story of a number of migrations. And before we get to his migration, we have to understand a previous one. This one involves an African-American man who was born in New Orleans. When I fixed my food, all, everybody would always come through and stick their head in the wind and tell me how good it was. Meet Eddie Oliphant. His slim physique belies a lifetime career of cooking professionally. While his conversations are punctuated by laughter, he's so serious about being a chef that he once left a good job because of a disagreement about using string to make prime rib. Back in 1972, Eddie was working as a chef at Jerry's Flying Fox, a well-known African-American hangout with a predominantly black staff and clientele. Sometime I'd make $40 and $50 a day, just they'd come back to the window and give me tips. But that's how much they loved your That's family. the way they loved my food, all my food. Macaroni and cheese, short ribs, oxtails, baked chicken, gumbo, prime rib, 
we did all of that. Eddie learned to make these southern specialties from family members. His training as a cook first started when he was about seven, courtesy of his aunt and grandpa, who he called Papa. It started interesting me, and they used to, uh, Papa made me a little stew thing like so I could be high and watch and see what was going on. Eventually, the family settled in Sandusky, Ohio, joining a wave of some six million African-American migrants who left the South during what is known as the Great Migration, starting in 1916 and continuing through the 1970s. They left home in search of more rights and opportunities in the North, Midwest, and West. But Eddie continued to learn Southern cooking during summer family visits to Georgia. He honed his skills even more after he was drafted into the Army, where one of his white commanding officers insisted that he serve up his red beans and rice once a week. After his tour of duty ended, Eddie returned to Ohio to work in the kitchen of a local hotel where patrons did not have a taste for Southern cooking. And I don't know, I just... Sandusky was a real small town, and I just didn't like it anymore. So one day I just jumped up and I landed in California, <laughs> Los Angeles. Eddie became a sous chef at the luxury Biltmore Hotel in downtown L.A., where he worked as one of three African Americans in their kitchen. Before long, he landed as the head chef at Jerry's Flying Fox. Uh, Vidal worked uh, right next door to us at the uh, Boulevard Cafe, and uh, I'd see him a lot, but, you know, I didn't know him. Eddie befriended a young Mexican guy named Vidal Cortez, who was working at Boulevard Cafe, another popular spot in the Crenshaw District. Eventually, Vidal moved over to work with Eddie. Well, me and Vidal got along real good. He was always uh, interested in cooking. But as he got over there with me, he started getting more interested. He started watching me, and he said, I like cooking. So I said, you like cooking? Just uh, watch me and what I do every day. Just watch me. And he'd watch me every day. Vidal had his own story of migration. He was only 18 years old when he left the poverty of his hometown of Puebla, Mexico, to come to Los Angeles. This was in the 1980s. Wow, to have better life, to give a better opportunities to my kids, and because it's, I think that's for too many people the dream to come in to USA. Adriana is one of Vidal's three kids. She was only a toddler when her family made the journey to Los Angeles, so she does not remember what life was like for her father as a young man. But he has shared stories. He suffered a lot. I mean, he, you know, he grew up with, you know, a pair of shoes. I remember he told me a story of, like, they were so poor ones that his shoes had holes in the bottom. So he put a piece of cardboard. And um, But he remembers that when he was in church, you know, you have to kneel down. He kneeled down. The person behind him saw the cardboard and started laughing. You know, how embarrassing that was for him at the time. You know, you're in church and they're still laughing at you, you know. But um, so he dealt with a lot. Vidal and his family arrived in L.A. at a time when a burgeoning wave of Latinos was taking over the city's restaurant kitchens, often pushing out black workers. With the help of a relative, Vidal got his first job at Boulevard Cafe, where he was at the bottom of the restaurant staff food chain. 
He started off as a busboy and then a dishwasher, but he had his eye on moving up. Vidal says he eagerly volunteered when the cooks in the kitchen asked for his help, but they did not return the favor. He says they did not want to share their cooking secrets with him. But then he met Eddie. And he started teaching me everything. Yeah, he showed interest because he'd come around and watch me, and then uh, he'd tell me, one day I'm going to be a cook like you, Eddie. He'd tell me different things like that. He cook a different. I like very the taste. Boulevard Cafe King uh, serving soft food, and Jerry Flanfax serving soft food. But I taste that his food and it's completely different. Especially one of Eddie's signature dishes. We cook um, every um, Friday two big pots, but very big pots of gambo. In two, three hours, all the gambo is gone. But the offerings of the fledgling Mexican cook, who was finding his groove in the cooking of collards and fried chicken, they were not so popular in the beginning. Some of the people, when Vidal first started cooking, it, in the evenings, they wouldn't eat. When I leave, they could, they wouldn't eat with him. So you're saying the people in the dining room? Yeah. How would they? By know? customers, they'd see him. You know, they see him, and they wouldn't eat. A lot of them wouldn't eat until I told them that uh, go ahead and eat. It's okay. They didn't think uh, Mexicans could cook. Uh, you know, soul food. Uh, uh, black people are a little prejudiced too now. There's a little prejudice there, too. During our interview, Vidal's eyes missed as he recalls the memory. It hurt. Oh, yeah. Even right now. <laughs> wow, but that's not easy. Yeah. But it's something to help you to, to get strong and show them that they, they run. Behind the scenes... Vidal's mentor, Eddie, kept encouraging him to cook. I said, well, just keep watching me and you'll get a job anywhere you go. Eddie was right. After about six years, Vidal went on to work as a full-fledged cook in the kitchen of another soul food establishment in the area, and then another, and then another. By the age of 12, Vidal's daughter, Adriana, joined him in the kitchen. She watched as the restaurant owners where her father worked relied on him to pick out the equipment. One vendor was so impressed with how Vidal handled himself, he suggested that he open up his own place. But bankers turned him down because they said he did not have enough of a credit history. We didn't have money, you know. We borrowed money from everyone, you know, that we knew family-wise. Whether it was $500, $2,000, $1,000, whatever it was. You know, I think the biggest loan we had was $5,000 from, from someone. Vidal says one of the lenders was the vendor who encouraged him to go into business. And so he opened Delicious Southern Cuisine in 2011. But the first days were filled with disappointment, much like what happened at Jerry's Flying Fox. There were those in the community who did not accept Vidal or his food. And they say the same thing. How would, uh, they don't understand why the Mexican come and cook our food. He says one woman was especially vocal. And this lady, she stay outside of the restaurant and talk to any customer trying to come to the restaurant. She's trying to talk to them and ask them 
Hey, it's a Mexican cook. He cook our food. He's trying to make money with our food. And uh, and I go outside and I talk to her. And I say, do you uh, really you think I do something wrong? I say, why you do this? Tell me what I do wrong to you. Taste my food. And then you can say anything else after that. And things turned around. People started coming and eating. Even the woman who was bad-mouthing him in front of his restaurant. Now he says she's one of his best customers. And the African-American customers who now fill his restaurant don't really seem to care who owns the place or who's in the kitchen. They care more about how crispy the chicken and how creamy the mac and cheese are. That includes regular Lynn Booth. All of us make each other's food. Because I haven't been around here, so I know some other places black folks made, didn't make the best. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying black like that. I'm just saying. Because I'm black, okay? So I don't want you to think I'm white. <laughs> but I'm just saying, it has nothing to do with the nationality. That's what I'm trying to say, or the, or the race. If we all make, if we can cook, we can cook. Charmaine Jefferson agrees with Lynn. She's an L.A. native and the former director of the California African American Museum. She believes there are bigger catfish to fry than being proprietary about soul food. It's a great place for us to want to hold on to our traditions or make sure they're not lost. But there's probably even bigger battles for us to have than whether or not we're going to worry about whether or not one of our Mexican brothers or sisters is cooking soul food. That, to me, is like, oh, no, 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 don't worry about that. Embrace it. Bring your kinfolk, his kinfolk, and let's all make sure that everybody understands that this is good cuisine. And to some degree, she says, Vidal has moved in to fill a space left by the departure of some African Americans. Charmaine says integration, not just migration, has influenced the way folks eat in this part of Los Angeles. For a long time, there were housing covenants here and elsewhere around the country that restricted where African Americans could live. This form of segregation meant that for years, black restaurateurs in South Los Angeles had, in effect, captive audiences. Once integration and fair housing laws were established, an increasing number of African Americans had more access to the city. That meant they did business and aid and even moved outside of the historically black neighborhoods. So clearly there was a time period where you couldn't go everywhere, you couldn't eat everywhere, and whatever we were cooking was what we were cooking. And I sometimes will say to people, that march to allow us, and those protests to allow us to eat at the Woolworth lunch counter were important. And so glad that we were, we were able to achieve that. But what we didn't know was that when we did that, everyone would go to the Woolworth lunch counter and Miss Lulu's would go out of business because segre- desegregation was not a two-way street. And in some ways, this Mexican-owned soul food restaurant and some of the tensions associated with it is reflective of another demographic trend in Los Angeles. Raul Inahosa is a University of California Los Angeles professor and the director of the North American Integration and Development Center. He has studied the immigrant diaspora, and he's tracked what some scholars call the browning of traditional black neighborhoods. And we have maps that show the evolution of, of what was um, the, the, the South Central L.A., which was at one point 
poor whites, which was then became poor blacks and is now poor Mexicans, right? Because of the nature of the housing in a, in a, in a lot of these areas, you know. And as soon as white folks could get, especially some education and be able to, you know, buy a house in the valley and other places, they started moving out. The same thing has happened with African-Americans. And a lot of their children who were able to get better education and now better income have moved somewhere else, right? And now we have the more recent migrations in this, in this section. And of course, at each one of these moments created a lot of tensions uh, as in turning from uh, white to black, we're seeing tensions of turning from black to Latino. Demographic changes may be at the root of food fights as neighborhoods have morphed from mostly black to Latino. But the cross-cultural influences flow in both directions. Coming up, when Southern food is aimed towards a Mexican food-loving customer base, that's ahead. There is the donor music. We all know that Southern kitchens may be found outside the borders of traditional Southern states. Wherever Southerners move, Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, they take their foodways with them. And just as you'll find Southern kitchens across the country, you'll likely also find lodge cookware well beyond the boundaries of their South Pittsburgh, Tennessee home. For over 100 years, Lodge has produced cast iron cookware. They make a great skillet for fried chicken, the best Dutch oven for gumbo, and for a batch of hoe cakes, a Lodge griddle is just perfect. No matter where you live, if you have Lodge cookware in your cabinets, you can have Southern comfort food on your table. Now back to Lena Nozizwe in Los Angeles. The intersection of black and Mexican or blacksican cooking is not just about a Mexican chef running a Los Angeles soul food restaurant in an area traditionally home to African Americans. That's because the chef knife cuts both ways. African American entrepreneurs are serving up Mexican food as well often with a southern twist. Folks like Mississippi native Kenny Hamilton, also known as Hambone. It helps having the name Hambone, because my last name is Hamilton. They call me Hambone in Mississippi, and they call me Hambone in California as well. We talk as he stands in the middle of his restaurant, the original Hambones located in Bellflower. The suburb is north of downtown Los Angeles and east of Compton. The decor, Kenny says, pays homage to Mississippi, right down to the paintings of blues and jazz musicians on the wall. Kenny's a migrant, too. He moved to Southern California from Mississippi at the urging of family members. And just like the millions of African Americans before him, who left the South for a better life, Kenny boarded a Greyhound bus with $300 in his pocket and headed to Los Angeles in 1987. I moved to California. Well, my brothers, I have four brothers, and they told me, hey, dude, you can't stay here. I'm like, excuse me? I'm like, man, you got too much sense and too much mouth. You got to go. What did that mean? That means with the racism with which still exists to this day, and every, I don't take a lot of um, stuff. That's the word I'm going to use. Once in L.A., Kenny settled in Compton, a community that used to be majority African-American, but is now majority Hispanic. When Kenny arrived in California, cooking his own Southern food helped take the edge off his homesickness. 
Kenny says while he went to work as an engineer, food was always very much a part of his life. I, I, you know what, I would cook for my employees. I would cook for my house every day. I cook for my family, I cook for my wife's family because I didn't have much out here, much family, so I would just cook. He enjoyed it so much that Kenny came home from work one day and told his wife he was gonna start a restaurant. Five years ago, he opened Ham Bones. And he put his engineering background to work by designing a super-sized barbecue pit. So big that at 5'10", I could rock right into it in heels if it had a door. I start out cooking my brisket, cold smoking it, 8 to 10 hours, just cold smoking. And then, you learned how to do that in Mississippi? Oh yeah, we do that in Mississippi, and I just perfected it here. As much as he loved barbecue, though, he noticed something. In his adopted city, if it's Tuesday, it's very much Taco Tuesday. Man, we, you know, I, I'm all about marketing, and we're in California. I need to market the brisket. And with the uh, amount of uh, Latinos that we have in Bellflower alone, we can, I was like, you know, let me see if I can mix Mississippi with Mexico. That gave him an idea. A uh, brisket taco. Latinos make up more than half of the population in Bellflower, compared to about 18% whites and just over 14% African Americans. And those numbers are consistent with many communities throughout Los Angeles County. And so Kenny added a brisket taco to his menu. John? Yeah. Four brisket tacos? Yeah. Okay, your total is 431. And Kenny's brisket taco has become one of his best sellers even beating out the catfish he says he ships in from Mississippi every week, or freshly brewed sweet tea he has on tap, or his soul bowl, which features a layer of mac and cheese on the bottom, black-eyed peas in the middle, and either brisket or pulled pork on top. I sell 90% of it is my brisket tacos, and not only 90% of my tacos are brisket. I asked Kenny whether he ever got pushback for being a black man selling tacos, but he says no, which isn't to say that there isn't any Latino prejudice against African Americans, just as there was the reverse when Vidal got started. Kenny says competing local businessmen who also sell tacos noticed his success at Hambones. He says about a year ago they called him because they were worried. And they asked me, like, Kenny, can we talk to you? I'm like, sure. It's like, man, what are you doing on Tuesday? It's like, man, my business is cut 75%. On Tuesday, we don't even, no one's here. I was like, oh, I have Taco Tuesday on Tuesday. It's 99 cent tacos. Like, but you're black. I said, I know. I've been told. And I was like, come try them. They came down, we sat down at the round table. They tried them. It's like, man, these are good. These brisket tacos are wonderful. It's like, I see why everybody's down here. These mashups, Kenny's brisket tacos, the Dow's soul food, do have a growing audience as neighborhoods blend and people draw fewer distinctions between what's our food and what's yours. With the help of his daughter, Adriana, Vidal will be opening a new fine dining restaurant at the Dunbar Hotel, an African-American historical landmark in Los Angeles that opened in 1928. Migration has changed that neighborhood, too. 
it is now more than 70% Latino. So Vidal will be serving Mexican food along with his beloved soul food. And who was cooking what in South Los Angeles may be about to shift again. The flavor of the neighborhood is changing as an increasing number of white folks are moving back to an area that has been the domain of black and now Latino residents. The influx may change the racial composition of the area, but Kenny believes soul food will appeal no matter who moves in. There's so many ways to make soul food, and it is exactly what it is. It's from the soul, whether you're black, white, green, or brown. If you're making it from the soul, I mean, who can say that this is one nation's food or one race's food? Lena Nozizwe is a multimedia journalist, filmmaker, and author based in Southern California. Music for this episode was from Kevin McLeod, David Schulman, and the Quiet Life Motel, Blue Dot Sessions, Scapare de Casa, Sun Searcher, and T-Model Ford. A theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Sponsorship music is by Jazar. Thanks to Sarah Camp Milam and to Gravy's intern, Dana Bialik. Coming up, a taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first... Just as Mexican and African-American foodways are intermingling in present-day Los Angeles, they've done this before, in the Mississippi Delta, as far back as 75 years ago. That was when Mexican seasonal field workers shared tamales with local African-Americans. Over the years, the original Mexican tamale has evolved into the Delta tamale, smaller, less spicy, made with pork or beef. The Southern Foodways Alliance has done a lot of work documenting this cross-cultural connection. You can go to our website, southernfoodways.org, to wind your way through the tamale trail. Learn history, find recipes, meet tamale makers, maybe map a road trip. While you're online, consider a membership. Member dollars support SFA work, like the tamale trail, and this podcast. Coming up on the next episode of Gravy the food of generosity, even from the depths of poverty. She was a real, real woman because a lot of people wouldn't have fed those hobos. They would have been afraid of them, but she would just hand them a bag out the back door. They would get off the train. They knew where they could get some food. That's next time. And you may have heard, this is our one-year anniversary episode. I cannot believe it's been a whole year, and also that it's only been a year. Thanks to all of you for listening. And as far as birthday gifts go... A review and a rating on iTunes wouldn't hurt. You are listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war. Mm-hmm.